Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, film and television editor, Sarah Taylor. And by me, writer-director, Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we wanted to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here. On today's episode, we'll be talking about rural medicine and the impact lack of medical access can have on both patients and physicians. Dr. Catherine Wood has joined us to talk about what it's like to live and work in the Peace River area of northern Alberta, how she chose the path of rural medicine, and what she'd love medical shows to get right about practicing medicine. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice and is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, Please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. In this episode, we do talk about medical procedures, so please be warned. Dr. Catherine Wood, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and why and how you first became interested in working in medicine. So I grew up in Edmonton and both my parents work in medicine. I'm happy in a different time to talk about how that's very problematic. And there's definitely a lot of bias in terms of like socioeconomic backgrounds, who gets into medical schools. I'm very aware that I have a lot of socioeconomic privilege and that's partly why I was able to get into medicine, but we'll put that over there for now. So both my parents were doctors, very much grew up steeped in like, you know, hearing about what it was like to be a family doctor at the dinner table, hearing about kind of some of the more challenging parts of being a doctor, right? Not really the stuff you see on TV, but like how tough it is if you miss a diagnosis or have a patient going through something hard. And so I actually did not want to be a doctor as I was growing up. I was like, absolutely not, not for me. I did an English degree as my first degree. So I did honors English. Um, And then it was kind of midway through that I realized, number one, I kept trying to, you know, I had all these arts friends who had various (laughs) degrees of uh, self-neglect. And so I would be constantly trying to like, you know, help them out when they got sick, because nobody would want to wait in the emergency to see the doctor. And I also realized, I just realized that, you know, I think a lot of our perceptions of medicine is often that it's very, very science based. So you have to love science, number one, above everything else to want to become a doctor. And I realized that actually, I think a huge part of being a doctor is more just the art of communication. And there's also a lot of obviously, you do need to understand science as the last two years have shown us like you do need to understand how to interpret evidence and and understand scientific principles. But there's a lot of like less, less concrete science and more kind of cognitive processing, like pattern recognition, um, illness narratives. There's a lot of parts of diagnosis and management that aren't necessarily just like out of a textbook. There's a lot more of a human factor to it. And so I think once I started kind of getting more of that nuance as to how it applied to what I wanted from my life, I realized that I was interested in uh, switching paths. So I switched, I finished my degree, did a couple years of science to get my prerequisite, and then uh, ended up in medical school. So I have had a lot of post-secondary education. <laughs> 13 years, <laughs> actually. Yeah. What is a typical day for you as a doctor? Uh, maybe if you can let the audience know where you are, because you're in northern Alberta, we have listeners from around the world. So kind of explain where you're located and what your typical day is as a doctor. Sure. Um, So I work in a town called Peace River, Alberta. It's five hours north of Edmonton. So five hours by ground, two-ish hours by 
flights, which is relevant to us for patient transport. It is a town of about like, I would say five, 6,000, but our catchment area. So that would be like the communities around us that would come to us as like their main site is around 20,000. Our closest referral site is Grand Prairie, which is about two, two and a half hours by ground. So here I'm a rural family doctor which um, is a two-year residency program right now. So just as part of like the rural family medicine here, I'm actually, I'll, I'll back up a sec. So then what I did is I did an extra year of training to do some surgeries. So surgeries that are essentially really beneficial for pa- patients to be able to access locally. So for example, to be able to deliver, uh, in my opinion, uh, sa- uh, safely, like have a baby safely, I very much think you should be somewhere with C-section backup. I know that is my bias as a medical professional who has seen a lot of bad stuff happen. But essentially the fact that we can provide C-sections here in Peace River means that women don't have to travel. Like what would happen otherwise is they would have to at around like term, so 37, 38 weeks, they'd have to travel and actually often relocate to Grand Prairie, which is then tough because they've not, you know, they've had a, a like continuity with their prenatal care with a physician here. And then they're actually being displaced. So there've actually been studies that show that outcomes are actually better when women can deliver where they've received their prenatal care. So the surgery year for family doctors is to try to enable those kind of surgeries, right? Like I shouldn't be able to do a bowel resection for cancer. That is not something <laughs> that like, number one, I can achieve confidence yeah. in, in a year by any means. Yeah. <laughs> um, and number two, you want to be in the bigger city. You want to have like the specialized, like post-operative, you, you, you that's not something that really needs to be done locally. Even though it would be extra convenient, we just have to draw the line somewhere. So the things that I do locally in Peace River that I think help, and there are a couple other surgeons in town as well, are C-sections. We can do appendixes, uh, if you get appendicitis, uh, ectopic pregnancies. And then we also help with uh, scopes, which is both like uh, like screening um, and sometimes more urgent ones. Um, Those are really helpful because then people aren't having to travel and often take like three days off of work um, for the whole process of getting the scope. So that's made a huge difference to like 70 year old farmers wanting to get their, their positive, uh, poop test investigated. So those are the kind of things that, um, the surgery year is there to encompass kind of urgent things. And then things that, you know, are, are things like screening scopes. So my average day, I'll leave out all the parts that have to do with having a child, <laughs> So, but just like subtract, like just add extra no sleep into what I'm describing. Yeah. But so the average day, the Depending on if I have any inpatients, so I might have someone admitted to the hospital because I've either done a surgery on them or delivered their baby, or just because they're my family medicine patient and they're admitted to hospital for some reason and I'm following them or I admitted them from the emergency department. Um, If I had anyone to see, I would try to get to the hospital a little early, sometimes 7.30 to 8, round on them. It could be a day where I'm in clinic, so then I would hop over to clinic. I have, again, my own family panel that I I see, as well as I see consults for, you know, people who might need scopes, people who might need things like hernia repairs or tubal ligations for kind of more elective surgeries. And then I would see prenatals. And then if it was a day at the hospital, then I might have my scheduled OR day Mm. and be on call. So that would mean that I am kind of in the OR doing my elective slate and scopes all day while also being on call for urgent surgeries and obstetrics. Uh, for the kind of 24 hours, 8 a.m. to 8 a.m. the next day, and sometimes longer, depending on who's on call. So there's times where I've, I think there was one period where I was one of the only surgeons for six weeks uh, straight, which was wow. a bit tough. Yeah. Anyway, but that's that's kind of how 
that's how a day goes. And then the other thing that people often don't know about medicine is that once we're not at the hospital, once we're home, we still actually have all of our lab results to follow up on and our notes to complete. So there's actually quite a bit of kind of unpaid labor and like looking into documentation and checking that people don't have critical lab values that have just gotten sent to your inbox. So it's it's often a long day, but it's very varied and very interesting. So you have a family practice. How many other you said there's a few other doctors who are surgeons. Are they also family doctors? Like, how does that work as a community? Yeah, so Peachtree is interesting in that we're kind of this, I think we're this perfect size where actually everyone in town is a family physician with with some with enhanced skills. So there's me and one other physician who are family physicians who have what's called enhanced surgical skills, which encompass both like the obstetric surgical skills and then also like the scopes and the appendixes and the ectopics. And then there's an, a third physician who is a family doctor and can do like C-section. Obviously there's times where if w- one of the first two of us are away, she might be the only surgeon in town. That's fine. Appendixes, you know, it's nicer if they can be done locally, but it's not the same as like sending all of our obstetrics away because we don't have C-section coverage. Mm-hmm. And then we have other family physicians in town who just do clinic and emerge. Um, And then we have some who do clinic emerge and just kind of delivering babies, not any surgical procedures related to that. And then we have our um, family practice anesthetist. So those are the people who, uh, you know, the other side of surgery, which is anesthesia. Yeah, that's a really important part. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I never even thought about anesthesiologists. Yeah. 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 Don't they call them sometimes they're like the controller of the, the room or something? Well, that's debatable, but (laughs) (laughs) oh, whoa, spicy! (laughs) From what we've seen on TV, they there is like a certain personality that plays that role. So, (laughs) so I'm so my husband is one of the oh my um, gosh family practice anesthetists. (laughs) So we and and there is like a historic like kind of historic slash. It's a bit joking. It's a bit true. Like you know, like surgery and anesthesia will sometimes like butt heads just a little bit. So we often like joke and play off of that a bit I when we it. when we share an operating room. Uh, so that's why I feel comfortable. But yes, absolutely. Anesthesia is like a huge, they keep the patient alive, very important and make them comfortable. You're yeah, just adding, yeah, you're adding yeah. layers to the story. You're writing Heather. Heather's the writer. So uh, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. We're gonna have another call after this. But I think it's like amazing that your husband and you we'll do surgery together. Yeah. I, you know, we joke that sometimes it's the only time we see each other is in the operating room. It sounds like it. And then you add, you have a small child on top of that. Yeah. So yeah, this your yeah. life is very full. It is. Which when we originally connected with you, you're like, here's my schedule. And we're like, wow, we need to talk about, okay, not only access to healthcare in a remote area, but how does that affect you as a human and your mental health? And then we can maybe touch on your patients after, but how does it affect you and as a person to have Mm -hmm. so much on you? There's a lot to say about that. I'm not, I feel like there's different tiers I can chat about. So I will say number one, I absolutely like, and I think part of the culture here in Peace River and probably rural medicine in general, unfortunately, is very much like you work hard, play hard is the nice way of, of saying it. But the accurate way of saying is that we all just like, kind of cruise along toward (laughs) along like burnout. And then when we start to get a little too, when it gets a little too bad, then Mm. we usually get one to two weeks off, which is not necessarily a healthy approach to this. It's honestly within the resources we have, it's kind of what we've all started to adapt towards. So that's, that's kind of that part of it. I very much recognize that 
in a perfect world, we would not always be working these schedules. I think as someone who is, I'm very passionate about rural medicine and like trying to provide care to like rural communities, just like full stop have less access to healthcare. And they're often like, they include like, you know, indigenous populations. I think it's really important that we stay out here. And so sometimes that means because there's so few of us, if I were to say, well, I'm just, I'm only, I'm going to work one emerge shift a month, or I only want to be on call like five days a month. That is great for me, but someone else is picking up where I'm letting off. And so, and then you're burning that person out. That person is more likely to leave. It's just, so we've found, I found here, like I've, even though I've worked in Peace River almost three years as a staff, I've also been here as like a med student and a resident. So I've really seen the cycles. So that's that. My personality type is also such that I, for better or for worse, I'm very happy to say that it's not a, it's not like a, a purely good trait, but I do derive a lot of like my self value from feeling like I'm working hard. Like I, I to a degree, I, I really enjoy it. And that's why I went into the, the surgical residency as well. Now, I, I do have to recognize that I can get as much positive feelings from working too hard as I like, but then at a point, I still get burned out. So I part of my self work is to try to find a balance where I protect myself more and don't just take on work because it's hard to say no to it. Medicine itself is just hard day to day. And sometimes it's not even about the hours. It's about like, for example, last week, I was what, the only surgeon who does like appendixes and, you know, sur- like that, that side of the surgical stuff in town for about 10 to 14 days. And uh, we had, I think, four appendicitises in um, like five days or something. And so I had a day where I was running my elective OR day, had like a C-section in the morning found out I had this confirmed appendicitis. I was worried about how long you got symptoms. So I did him in the middle of the day. He was a very challenging appendicitis. I actually called one of the general surgeons in Grand Prairie just for like advice and a bit of guidance intraoperatively. And then finished up that case, continued in my elective OR. They got a new appendicitis diagnosed, brought him in. And then as I was, as the patient was getting intubated, I read I got a note in my kind of electronic medical, like we get different places where different tasks and notes get routed to us. Uh, I got a note that uh, actually a surgery I'd done like six to eight weeks ago had had a complication. Like, and so some of the mentals of being a physician that I feel like it, sometimes it's just that you are, you're in the middle of a busy day, a challenging day, and then you we're not perfect, right? So we're going to make mistakes. Any surgeon is going to have complications. Like, that's just how it is. Nobody's so perfect that everything goes great every time. But you have to often just absorb that and you don't really have time to you have to just like roll right into the next thing. So that can be hard on the mental health, as can just the relentless. Like I think what I struggle with most now that I have a kid as well is when I come home, I have to really try to disconnect from all the work I still have to do so that I can spend time with him before his bedtime. So I, I found when I first went back to work, it was a lot of like what I used to do when I didn't have a kid is I would come home from work and then I would still be like working on my tasks and working on my notes and that can eat up another two hours. And so in the first, I mean, I'm still working on it. Who am I kidding? When I come <laughs> home now, I'm very much trying to say, okay, things can wait. It sucks that I'm going to be doing them from like 8 to 9.30 p.m., but I, you know, I'd like to actually be present and not mm-hmm. distracted and not 
you know, doing kind of a bad job of both, right? Yes, <laughs> doing a bad yeah. job of being a mom and a bad job of my tasks. So that's, I, that's also currently the thing that I'm struggling with. There's just, yeah, that it's a huge question, Sarah. Sorry. I don't like, there's so many. <laughs> no, I don't know. but I think even what you're saying, like, obviously not everybody can relate to being a doctor and like that your work is actually like, can be life and death. You know, I make TV, so that's not like, mm-hmm. it's know, not it's, life or death. It's not life or death, but, or often I say we're making TV. I'm not, I'm not doing brain surgery. Well, now we're talking to a surgeon. Oh. And but but I have the same issue. I come I come home or I, I work from home. So I'm at home. My daughter comes home from daycare and I'm thinking about the email I need to send or the expert that's happening or whatever it is. And I'm having the same thing. I'm not being a good worker. I'm not being a good mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do we you know, we need to allow ourselves to be in that yeah. middle ground sometimes. Yeah. This parent guilt. It's not just yeah, it's not just moms, but I feel like moms talk. I think moms moms absorb a lot more guilt, I think. Yeah, and I think so too. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> but I think it's also because it's what is put upon Us. moms. A hundred percent. It's all cultural yeah. expectations. The stereotype I've been given is that I'm like a earth mother who like comes home and just like rapsly stares at her child while, <laughs> you know, he like, I don't know, like just like bangs things against each other. I don't know. Like, <laughs> that's just not always the reality. No. I no. want like this be, beautiful being. And you're like, oh, I got to write like this yelling paper. at me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's see, yeah, very relatable. Let's talk a little bit about the the other side of things. You know, you're serving patients in Peace River and the surrounding areas and trying to create more access to medical care for the people in your community. So what is the impact of not having that medical care close? Yeah, it's very challenging. Like we right now, every place everywhere in Canada, I think people are struggling to find a family doctor. And like, I get asked like at least two to three times a day if I'm taking on patients. And sometimes I'm a softie and I do, but the, like one of the barriers is I could take on 2000 people onto my panel, but then if you can't get in to see me for two months, am I being that helpful? So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's one of the things that we see, we see it like where even we can see like trends in our emerge, like if there's a lot of people away on vacation and people have less clinic availability, our emerge volumes go up, right? Because people aren't able to, to access care for non-urgent issues, or we see, we see things that maybe could have been caught earlier, you know, having escalated. Talking about post-pandemic, like we're seeing a huge rise in cancer diagnoses, which are like more advanced just because so many people, understandably often, because they were higher risk age groups, avoided kind of, you know, higher risk hospital and clinic settings. So we can absolutely see the lack of access play out that way. One of our jobs working really is to decide what is and is not within like our competence as GP surgeons or as family practice surgeons. You know, sometimes we have patients who will need to go to specialists in Edmonton. And like, sometimes we hear from these patients, like I drove five hours, they looked at me for five minutes, and then I drove back. Oh, the pandemic introduced billing codes for um, virtual medicine that were previously not available. So previously, a lot of in-person stuff had to happen purely because physicians just couldn't bill very well for doing things mm. over the phone. So, you know, and like, it's not that it's all about money, but also we have like, people in the city have bills to pay overhead to pay like, you know, it so the nice thing actually about the pandemic, which I hope that they continue, is that there's now billing codes for things like phone consultations with specialists. So we're now seeing actually a bit better access in that perspective. And then, you know, obviously access for our Indigenous populations to healthcare is like an ongoing challenge that I feel like 
that's like a whole separate podcast topic, mm-hmm. but there's so many mm-hmm. components to that. It's interesting because I feel like often we hear like, oh, our healthcare is not like the States. Like in the States, I think access to medical. Yeah, there's the rural aspect for sure. Yeah. But then there's also insurance, which is a totally, that's where things fall apart. Yeah. And then in Canada, like we have universal healthcare, but it still can be challenging, like you said, to get a, even in Edmonton, to get a family doctor. It was interesting you mentioned like I do C-sections so that my OB patients can stay in one area. And I think, well, I'm in the city. I saw my doctor, I saw her once because she just wasn't there. And so like, I didn't have like, I didn't have the same doctor through my pregnancy. So it's funny, like, that sounds like a really great (laughs) situation. Like, they're gonna (laughs) have you. I mean, I do work in an obstetric group of like, I have, like, there's four of us in the small group. Like, I I don't believe in one on one obstetric call for physicians, no offense. But like, oh, that's like, (laughs) that would be much like, yeah. yeah. (laughs) yeah but hearing that was like oh there at least there's i feel like almost maybe people get to know you better as a human because there's only so many of you and you that you only have so many patients compared to like a big city and listen that is part of why i love rural medicine so much actually there's a program in second year medical school where you can come and just spend a month in a rural community and i can i just randomly got assigned to peace river and i just i just man i loved it like you just the patients are, you know, not uniformly. I'm not trying to say that this is like a Pollyanna situation, but you do develop like, I think, a, a close bond with some of your patients and with your nursing staff and with your colleagues. So that's a bonus. That's good. Now, you did mention that you provide C-sections and you help with atopic pregnancies. How has changing the access to re- reproductive health in the community, how has that been impactful to your patients? Yeah. So, I mean, number one, Mifepristone becoming um, available in Canada a few years ago was honestly, that's really revolutionized access to reproductive health care, particularly reproductive options across the Canada. Like I think Dr. Jen Gunter recently wrote a blog post comparing like this current anti-choice wave in the US and the restrictions going up um, saying like, we aren't using the coat hanger pins. We are using the pins with misoprostol on them because that is where that that is actually where we're going. And mifepristone is it's not necessary because it is a bit more expensive, but mifepristone just like really significantly increases the success rate of and by significant I mean by like 10 to 15%, which is really only significant if you're, you know, a medical doctor who is risk adverse, but it really improves the success rate of like first trimester um, abortions uh, if you're doing them with medication. And it's way easier than methotrexate used to be. So that's number one. Like I just, if there's any, I don't, if there's any other family doctors listening to this podcast and you're not thinking if you're, if you're pro-choice and you're like, but I don't feel comfortable with mifepristone, man, oh man, it's not hard. There are courses you can take through like the National Abortion Federation. In terms of other things, so Reproductive health, like I I do find that I accidentally have a very strong woman's health focus in my both my kind of clinic and consults and OR. Like I'm very willing to put IUDs in like younger teenagers with a bit of sedation. Some younger teenagers, you know, have chosen that as like their method of contraception that they want, but they're scared of pain. And for some of them, they might actually be getting an IUD as their contraception choice before actually their sexual debut. Um, in which case, I very much don't want their first experience in that region to be like, super painful and traumatic. So, you know, my opinion is, I don't know, I don't think it's the right mentality to say, well, if you want to be sexually active and have excellent contraception, then you have to go through pain. Nah, so, you know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll offer them a like, you know, 
a little bit of sedation in the OR where they're monitored and it's safe. There is slightly increased risk, but I discussed that with them. And I feel like I see quite a few um, women for, for contraception management, for endometrial biopsies. Often women are just more comfortable with a female physician um, as well. So that kind of often self-selects. Yeah. Now you said you accidentally fell into that realm. What? So how did you? <laughs> so I guess by accidentally, I guess what I, I don't think I like consciously realized, but when you become, when you are a female physician who has like, let's say enhanced surgical training, women just often will ask for a woman if possible. I, again, I'm, I'm happy. It's like one of my favorite parts of my practice is reproductive health. I get a lot of fulfillment out of it, but I think I didn't realize how quickly it would like, it would skew. So I have OR days where it's like, I'm doing a, a tubal, I'm doing like, an IUD insert, it like it's and it's like it's it's very much like a a little woman's health warning. Part of the reason why female physicians actually still get paid less than male physicians is because there's like systemic built-in price differential between things that are kind of more gynecological and things that aren't. But yeah, that's a that's a whole other. I did oh, not know that. Oh. oh my god! A vasectomy pays twenty dollars less than a tubal ligation, which a tubal ligation is actually like an intra-abdominal surgery. Anyway, now listen, I, vasectomies are very finicky. Like I'm not trying to under under um, represent how finicky and like, yeah, you know, it requires some but technical you don't have skill, to be but it's just, yeah. Put under for a No, you like, just get local, yeah. <laughs> come on. Ugh. What's the time difference mm. between? That depends because a hard vasectomy, like those can be like 45, 30, 45 minutes, but like a quick, like in the city where they have those fancy, like, um, I don't know if you guys, the like jet injectors of the anesthetics for the vasectomy. I think they're like pumping out vasectomies in like 10, 15 minutes. Like I am not because I don't have all their fancy tools. So things take a bit longer. And then a tubal, like the fastest you could probably do a turnaround, not including anesthetics. So waking the patient up and probably the fastest surgical turnaround you could do would be like 15 minutes. But this, then you, if you've taken the anesthetic time, that's like, it's going to be like 40 minutes minimum, 45. And the number of people that are part of that procedure right there's because you have oh yeah tubal ligation is hugely more expensive for like the healthcare system i'm not i don't want to sound like i'm anti-tubal ligation but i just yeah <laughs> it's probably it's probably an hs's best interest to pay me less for tubal ligation because they're paying so many other people anyway it's <laughs> what are some myths around rural medicine that your mind was changed when you started working in peace river and started to see things firsthand in popular culture, I think things mostly get portrayed as it's either very extreme, like it's like extremely remote wilderness situations where like people are doing like appendectomies on themselves or <laughs> or you just see like the single clinic office. So I still get a lot of people who think that I only work in a clinic and then I have to explain like, no, like I'm actually working like probably I'm in the hospital two thirds of the time and then in clinic a third of the time. I think that maybe the biggest cognitive shift though for me was because I think rural medicine is appealing and interesting in a lot of ways because it, it, there's a little bit of a cowboy aspect to it where you're like, I am going to be like the person in Emerge and I'm going to see wild stuff coming in and I'm going to do stuff that, you know, urban doctors aren't doing. And that is wonderful and very interesting and, and and great. However, I think as I started to train, even as a resident, and then also work as a staff, the issue is, is that you have to really figure out how to draw a line between what is an, what is an appropriate thing that I'm doing to help provide care to a patient here that I'm 
that either I am competent to do, or that it's so emergent that I have to just pony up and do it, right? There's a fine line that's easy to slide over into a place where you are so cowboy that you're kind of forgetting that there might actually be patients who are going to get better outcomes if they actually are referred to a tertiary Mm. care center, or I could do it, I could fumble through it, or would this person be better served somewhere else? And so this is sometimes I do notice, like, especially when people are doing locums around in uh, like working largely emergency in rural areas, every once in a while you get someone who you can just tell is a bit addicted to like that feeling of like, oh, it's just me. I can do whatever I want. Mm. But then, then I worry that I'm contributing, like I worry about that contributing to the health disparity, right? Like yeah. mm-hmm. um, often these, this patient population is so starved for access to medical care that you might see something where they did have a worse outcome because of something that maybe should have been referred. The patients who face kind of the most disparity in our healthcare system are also the ones the least empowered to report it or say like, hey, this shouldn't have happened to me. So I think that is that was like a, a gradual cognitive shift that I felt myself undergoing as I kind of went through training. Obviously, I've now done extra training. So I do do obviously a bit more, but I still I still have to be like, ooh, hold up, like, I'm just going to double check about this or And that's maybe also my personality type. But yeah, it is a fine line between like, sometimes there's this feeling of I want to be able to do everything myself, because that's cool. And then they don't have to travel. But for example, I have farmers come in, they've got a huge, (laughs) a huge, obvious skin cancer, like on their scalp. And I'll tell them like, I think you're better served if you go to the city and get them to take it out. And some of them are like, I don't care if it's going to have to heal on its own and you can't get the, the edges back together. I want you just to do it. And then I'm like, okay, well, I don't think that's in your best interest. But if that's your your informed choice, then yeah. sure. I have a follow up to that. Did you get extra training because you were in the situations where you were and you're like, hey, if I knew how to do this, this would be really helpful. Or were you always kind of just like eager to learn more and do more? I think some people do it for exactly the reason that you're describing, which is like, this is a need of a community, or I want to kind of have the ability to do this myself. I also think a certain degree of surgical vocation is just like enjoying technical hands-on mm. stuff, like just mm-hmm. like enjoying it. And I do just enjoy that. Like I also knit a lot as my main pastime. <laughs> I love um, uh, <laughs> So I think it was a bit of both for me. Like what happened is when I was here as a med student, um, you know, it has a very, we have an active surgical program here. And I was very, I was more involved in doing surgical assist and surgeries than I ever would have been in the city as a medical student. And so I, I really like got to love it. And then I think that's kind of what pushed me towards it. But it's also very nice to know that for certain things, I'm not anxious about when the person who can help me is going to arrive. Like I can just make a decision myself as to when a woman needs a C-section. Just as another (laughs) follow-up, you talked about the myths of it, but is there anything that you would like to change about rural and remote medicine? I just wish we could get more people to come up. You see people graduating family medicine. The biggest thing, it doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter what your plans are in med school. The biggest predictive factor of whether or not you end up working rurally is whether or not your partner likes to live rurally. Like, like that's it, right? You could be a down to, a down home rural boy. If your wife wants to live somewhere with a Starbucks, you're not moving rurally, right? Like, and that's a very gender biased comment, but like it goes absolutely the other way, right? If somebody, if a female physician has a male partner, he also loves Starbucks and fancy dinners, like they're not moving rurally. So you see a lot of people going into urban medicine and then urban medicine, like just 
again, in no way am I trying to say that physicians are not like in, in the grand scheme of like the average income in Canada. I'm not trying to say that physicians are suffering or struggling. I will say in places like Victoria and Vancouver, it's now getting to the point where if you are just an urban physician working a clinic, you actually might not make enough money to pay your overhead on the clinic because property prices are so high there. My point is <laughs> urban physicians, I often see them now like augmenting their family practice with things like Botox injections or like, like all these kind of like, uh, and so I'm, I just wish I could tell them like, look, if you, if you, if, if I could convince you to work early, like, I think it's so, I think it's so much more fulfilling. I work all the time and I get paid accordingly, like yeah. <laughs> for lack of a better word, like I, you know, I think many professions should be paid better. I also do think I am on call a lot and I assume a lot of responsibility. And so some of that is reflected in my pay, but man, I just wish I could convince more people to work early. Like that's, that's honestly it. And it's just, I think it's a big struggle because medical schools aren't offering enough exposure to rural environments. Most of the people teaching in medical schools are like subspecialist specialists, because those are the people who have the time <laughs> To yeah. do it. Like it sounds bad, but I can't drive down to Edmonton to teach a medical school for like an hour and then like drive back, right? It's going to be like your subspecialty pediatricians or, um, you know, endocrinologists or whatever who have actually academics built into their salary. Right. As you can see, I think it goes so far back. I don't know exactly where to fix it, but I do think if there was more exposure, maybe we could convince more people to come. My husband's trying to organize outreach to um, a nearby Métis settlement because as you probably know, Métis settlements aren't covered under like any of the federal, you know, federal stuff. So the settlement has actually never had like healthcare provision to it. My husband is Métis, so he's trying to organize going out, which means he's trying to find essentially like a two-day period every two months where he can like drive down, stay the night and like see people. So we're, we're trying, but man, it's hard because he also wears so many hats, right? He also is wearing like the anesthesia hat and has one and two call. And if we could just convince more people to come out. <laughs> no, no. We, any young yeah. doctors listening, start your life in the rural area. Come on. That's right. <laughs> Give it a try. Do some elective. Sarah and I both work in film and television, as, yeah. as you know. Okay, we're going to turn our minds to that for a second. Okay. Are there any TV shows or films that you think represent rural medicine in an accurate way? If I were to pick one movie that I think actually represents rural medicine accurately, it's a bit off, but it actually, like, it's going to surprise you. Have you guys seen Lars and the Real Girl? <gasps> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, okay. that doctor in that movie actually, like... Like, number one, I think it's a beautiful movie. But number two, that doctor, like, the close connection she had to her patients, kind of her saying, well, this is what I think we should do. You know, she didn't have the ability to send him to a psychiatrist. She just kind of, like, continued the relationship, was supportive. I don't know. To me, that represented a lot of, like, the community aspects and the relationships you build with your patients early. Wow. That is a great example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love, I love that movie. It was a really good movie. Yeah. And then, honestly... Even though MASH is not about rural and remote medicine, I still think that's probably one of the better representations of like the hard parts of being a physician. I mean, I know it's also in wartime, but I still think it's hard to beat MASH. There's a few that I loved watching. I'm going <laughs> to see if you've seen them or what your takes are. Sure. So uh, newer Netflix series, Virgin River. I haven't watched it. So she's like the nurse practitioner. She comes and they're like, basically their clinic is in a house. It's like an old old house. I'm sure there's emergency surgery in the back of the bar because somebody gets shot. Like, it's very epic, right? They're so hard to watch because they're never right. Like, and I know they try, but like, I I sometimes will watch shows with medical stuff and I'm like, honestly, 
you can, I will be on call for these TV shows. Like you can call me and just be like, Hey, we're going to do this. Does this make any sense? And I'll be like, <laughs> can you fix this? Don't pay me. Just call me. Cause there's so many times I'm watching TV shows and I'm like, Oh, they tried. Like I could tell they tried. And then this like one thing is so wildly nuts. Like <laughs> anyway, so I, I, I often it. don't, but it sounds great. I it's, just, it's- I, I would watch it and I'd be like, Oh no. <laughs> but do you know any doctors that like work out of their house? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I think in Virgin River, it's not actually his house. It's just a house that is the clinic. That, but it, it's like a fancy, really cool house. That's, that's like, fine. Yeah. Oh, what was the other one that I really liked watching? Uh, Heart of Dixie. Is that what it was? Heart called? of Dixie. Yeah, I've so heard, of that. I've that. heard yeah. of that. I also, again, my caveat is I don't you know try what? to that's, seek out things about myself. Anymore. That's fair. Like, you know, <laughs> With Heart of Dixie, which is interesting. So it's a it's a rural practice in in southern state. And basically, it's about a doctor who's doing uh, urban medicine, finds out her father was actually a rural doctor, and she inherits his half of the practice with this other doctor who doesn't want her there, but she owns half the practice so she can practice medicine there if she wants. I know some of my friends who are physicians loved Heart of Dixie. Okay. So Okay. Well, that's good to hear that other doctors Yeah. Do. Yeah, I think sometimes the way rural med is portrayed on those shows where like, I'm sure this urban doctor at one point did an emergency surgery. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And you're like, I'm a rural doctor and I can do the emergency surgery too. So thank you very much. <laughs> I know. But again, I did a lot of training and we yes, do yes. it in the OR and like, yeah. So. You're not doing it on the like back of a trailer or something. I mean, I, I, again, I, I, I always tell people one of the most accurate medical movies is actually Mad Max Fury Road because you oh. know the guy who like the guy uh, George what's his name he's actually an emergency physician from oh, Australia yeah. yeah and so anyway Mad Max Fury Road like that chest tube dead accurate like I amazing <laughs> yeah well, they, he's seen so many crashes I read about this he'd seen so many crashes as an ER doctor that he's like crashes must be accurate in terms of what happens to you and so like some of them are brutal yeah but because he's like that's real so we're gonna be real exactly Oh, so cool. <laughs> what is one procedure that you've seen on a show mm-hmm. that gets wrong, that's done wrong often that you'd be like, just do this thing to fix it? Do you have one of those? I mean, number one, people don't scrub properly. So like Dr. Mm. Strange, like the first five minutes, he like scrubs and then he like puts his mask on. I was like, what are you? No, like you can't. Uh, you have to start <laughs> off with your mask. And then you he, he very clearly contaminates himself. So that's like... <laughs> That's it's that's a toughie to watch. Like whenever okay, someone okay. breaks the sterile chain, like that's hard to watch. <laughs> Just in terms of like responses to trauma, you see some interesting like responses to trauma, like where it's like someone obviously has like penetrating injuries all over and like the method that they're using to ascertain whether they're still alive is like they just like put a hand on the chest. I'm like, well, you could just check for a pulse. Like <laughs> you don't like have to yeah. And then th- also just in, I find there's this fixation when somebody gets shot on like, once you get the bullet out, it's all good. Like, well, no, actually when you get shot, like it's more all the stuff the bullet went through that is now injured. So mm. just like extricating the bullet isn't like a magic fix. And now this person's going to be fine. Like they're going to be septic in two days from their perforated bowel. That's just mm. leaking into their abdomen. Those <laughs> I think like, it would be hard to watch these shows. I understand why. It's, 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 it's fun. There's like in a in a way it's fun and like me and my husband are just like, oh there it is again. The bullet's out. Now she's fixed. Like But yeah, this is I think there's a doctor who has a YouTube channel where he just watches medical shows and says what is incorrect. I mean it's very it. fun sometimes. I don't mind it, but I think 
again, I now have so few little time to watch TV that it's like, it's rare that I'm binging a show. Our last question. Okay. I'm a doctor. I'm not a doctor, but I'm just saying, like, let's say I'm a doctor and I'm like, hmm, rural medicine sounds like my jam. Is there any yeah. places and resources that they can go to and be like, learn more about it, learn about, you know, what they can do as part of that type of practice? Great question. I would say RHPAP, which is like Rural Healthcare Providers Action Plan, does a lot of trying to like outreach, trying to like encourage people to work rurally and support like recruitment and retention. Honestly, Mm -hmm. just if you're a medical student, just like you can do longer electives here. Oh, I forgot another great movie suggestion. The Grand Seduction. Also pretty good. Pretty accurate portrayal of like rural medicine and recruitment. It's that one set in Newfoundland with Taylor Kitsch. So maybe if you're a doctor that's interested in rural, watch The Grand Seduction, then yes, go yes, to these yes. websites. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, really reach out to if you have like reach out to working in a rural community nearby or like honestly reach out to just just think about it think about seeing how it fits into your practice even if it's something you do like for a week every six weeks like you might find it rewarding and interesting and pick somewhere where there's if, if you're just starting out and you're not quite sure if you have the skills to do like you know emerge or rural pick somewhere where it sounds like they have supportive colleagues who will like what you don't want to do is go work in a community where everybody like pieces out the second you arrive <laughs> if you're you know if you're not if you're not confident which sometimes happens because we get burned out and we're like fresh blood See ya. So try to pick one where you you know you're going to have a bit more support. Sounds great. Amazing. Is there anything that we didn't ask that you want to say? Like get vaccinated. <laughs> um, <laughs> not that I mean I know that you know we're moving to an endemic state, but it's still you know still, still nice. Yeah. Get your flu shot. Immunize your kids. Uh, <laughs> I don't know wear your seatbelt. Wear sunscreen. Those are all good tips. I do it. I do it all. (laughs) Yeah. I would say doctors aren't perfect. Absolutely. Like there are bad doctors out there, but a lot of us are trying hard. And um, the last two years have been really challenging for many reasons, which is both like seeing a lot of tough stuff happen to our patients and then having a a lot of people kind of reject the premises of our suggestions. Mm. So we are seeing a huge efflux of physicians and nurses, actually. There's a big shortage right now. So just like be kind to a physician. Like we are honestly trying. If you feel like we're not, maybe it's because we're having a bad day or we like just told a patient that they had cancer and so we're a little off. We're trying. We're not like, so some of us are jerks, but I think it's truly a minority. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. No, thank you so much. Thank you. Taking time from your very busy schedule to chat with us. This is a light two days. All I have is a night shift tonight. Okay. Okay. Oh, just that. Just that. Just that. It's fine. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you. I hope some of this was useful or interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Very much so was. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Bye. That was a really fascinating conversation with Dr. Wood about everything that she's dealing with as a rural practitioner. Mm -hmm. And I think like we focus a lot on the medical side of things and on her mental health, but didn't really talk about the access to mental health facilities or mental health help in rural areas. Statistically, there is the same percentage of people with mental health difficulties or needing some mental health help, but it's just that the percentage of people who are being helped is much higher in urban areas. Totally. Yeah. Because they have access to the help. Yeah, exactly. So I was reading, it's really interesting. So I was reading, this is in America, but then the same thing was in Canada too, that there's six common barriers, desire to receive care because there's stigmas, Mm -hmm. lack of anonymity when seeking treatment, shortages of mental health workforce uh, professionals, lack of culturally competent care. Yeah. Because we look at both rural 
um, America and rural Canada and other places that are rural, you have a lot of people in those areas can identify as Indigenous or also people of color. There's a lot of people who are working as farm workers who are immigrants mm-hmm. or other types or other immigrants that are coming into the country that are being encouraged to live in rural areas. So they just don't have um, people who necessarily, they, they often face difficulty with healthcare because of language barriers and cultural differences. Totally. Yeah. You also have affordability of care and then transportation to care, which, you know, and I think all of these things are also barriers for people in terms of their physical health, but mental health is part of that. And so I just wanted to address, and I think to what Dr. Wood's point that they now have a billing code to help people remotely may help it's just, again, going to be access to internet, access to infrastructure um, and technology. I think my computer died and I'm having like a really frustrating time because things are built for like to be done in a capacity on like an iPad or an iPhone or like imagine if you have whatever type of technology you have, things are only built for a very specific type of system. And you're like, well, I can't access things that I need to access now. And I'm you know, and this isn't going to be a problem forever, but what if this is the only way that I could access something? And a lot of people, they just have their phones. That's all they have. So yeah, there's lots of barriers. It was interesting when uh, Dr. Wood was talking about procedure pay mm-hmm. and like how that is still, like, the patriarchy is dictating how much a surgery is. Like these backwards way of thinking. I just, I didn't know that. Uh, that blew my mind. Yeah. And historically, like if you go back in time to like women have been having babies for, well, since the beginning of humanity. <laughs> for, for all of time. Um, for all of time. <laughs> um, but there were like in the, was it the 1800s? 1700s? They, it was always midwives. And then there was a certain point where there was basically, it was tra- started to become transactional. Totally. Yeah. There was money and there. And so surgeons decided they were going to be doing C-sections and they were going to be delivering babies. So they would, you know, this is before they understood germs and they would go and like do an autopsy on a cadaver and then they would come in without cleaning their hands and the mortality (laughs) rate skyrocketed. And they're like, I wonder why this is happening. And you're like, you took away the job from the people who were very competent. Then you started doing it without this understanding. And the man who then basically said, I think you're transporting germs they basically said, you're crazy and locked him up. Yeah, I remember and reading about ended that. ended his life in a mental institution. When I was watching game, the new Game of Thrones and um, Bridgerton, there were scenes where they had to choose between the mother and the child. And by mm-hmm. having a C-section meant the mom was just going to bleed out because they had no way of... Probably, yeah. ...protecting them, which made sense at the time. But I was like, wow. Wow. Yeah, I just wanted to like make sure we brought up the idea of like the mental health of people who are living in rural areas. But I can also imagine like doctors like Dr. Wood, you know, does she have access to mental health care? She may not have access there too. So it's, it's, it's really interesting when you think about, you know, we have to continue to think about this and continue to figure out like, how do we make sure there's access? Like in America, mm-hmm. one fifth of the population lives in rural areas. Yeah. They don't have access to this. You're having, you know, suicide rates going up exponentially more than in urban areas. And we need to be able to get, make sure people have access to mental health care. And it's not only about trying to destigmatize it, but it's also like, but then we also need to have access. Totally. Yeah. We can talk about it until we're blue in the face, but like if people can't get the help they need, then it just doesn't solve the problem. Vote everyone, getting the right people in government that can help 
um, with infrastructure. A lot of people, the only care that they're having, I was watching this documentary, it was with Adam, oh, the, from Adam Rooms at Everything, but it was a thing he did about the government and he was talking about healthcare. And in some portion, some states in rural areas, they have one medical center that's a federally run medical center and that's their only doctor. Wow. And that's it. And they have to deal with everything and kind of to, to, to what Dr. Wood was talking about, it becomes like, well, if the federal government didn't put someone there, then they would have no one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad there are th some systems in place, but it's not enough. And they're cutting back. They continue to cut back. And we looked at like, where are things being gutted? And like, we can see why we're kind of across, I think the entire, like entirety of North America. I, I maybe I won't speak for Mexico. I'll just speak for Canada and, and the U.S., but are continually ch chiseling away at our funding for healthcare. Mm -hmm. Even if we say we have some element of universal healthcare here, it doesn't matter if it's quote unquote free, if you can't get access to yeah, someone. Exactly. And that people are going, they don't have practitioners. So yeah. they're going to the ER. Like my friend, she had like a major fall, had a concussion, had to go to the emergency room and she can't go to anyone to check up on her. She'll have to go back to the emergency room. She has no practice, no um, GP. Yeah. They're not available. Well, and like in Alberta, they're leaving, right? In a lot of provinces, they end up, depending on what the political situation is, funding and whatnot, then they leave because they're not getting paid. They're overworked and underpaid. Exactly. So, and they all are coming off of a really intense couple of years. So we should all be nice to our doctors and our nurses yes. and our healthcare providers. We should. Uh, Agreed. We should be banging our pots still and saying thank you. And like yelling as loud as we can to those in power. To exactly. Banging the pots at those in power. <laughs> <laughs> to do a better Take job. care of our doctors and nurses. Well, and to continue to providers. care for us. I feel like we have decided to stop caring about anyone who is immunocompromised or disabled. Or well, That's the whole thing, right? This is a whole other conversation about who's worthy of what. And I think obviously we all are all worthy of medical help, regardless of what we look like. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's talk about some awesome things. <laughs> yes. Do you want to go first? I got a bunch. So I'm very excited. Not too many. It's But it's all prevalent, Heather. Just listen to your sister speak. All right. I'm listening. So by the time this episode airs, my latest uh, docuseries is out on APTN called Rodeo Nation. So please tune in to check that out. It's really great. Woo. And it's um, there's a lot of Blackfoot speaking in it, which is awesome. We just came off the language episode about Mohawk language. And so if you want to listen to some Blackfoot... Check out Radio Nation. And on September 23rd, I will be on a panel at the Calgary International Film Festival talking about ethics of documentary filmmaking, which I feel like yes. I'm obviously think about it a lot, a lot in the work that I do, but also with the conversations we've been having on this podcast, it makes me, I feel even more like well-versed in this topic of like just really analyzing and thinking about whose story are we telling? Why are we telling it? What what are we putting on in the world? So I'm excited to have that conversation. And three of my films are actually screening at the Calgary International Film Festival, which is very exciting. My first feature-length documentary, it's called Insanity, is going to be premiering at the Calgary International Film Festival. And then I have two short docs, one called Quinn, about the journey of a non-binary person, and one called Heartbeat of a Nation, about the story of the Denny drum. So if you're in Calgary, in the Calgary area during the film festival, please stop by and check out some of the work I've done. That's amazing. Also, you're being really uh, modest, but you are also <laughs> up for some awards oh. I've heard slash read. 
<laughs> yes, actually, that's true. That weekend is also the Rosie Awards, which is our Alberta Film and Television Awards. And I'm nominated for three this year. Amazing. One of them's for Rodeo Nation with my fellow editor, Wamey Teeter. And I really hope that we win that one together because she's great. And then um, The Last Baron, which is my Burger, Burger Baron burger documentary, which you should all check out as well. Amazing. And then Quinn, which will be screening at the festival. So those are the those are the shows that I worked on that I've been nominated for editing, which I'm very honored to have. So if people don't know what these awards, they're like the Oscars of Alberta, <laughs> is how I liken them. Oh, yeah, you can say that. Also, Picture It, that we talked about in the Aphantasia episode, is up for Best Picture and Best Director. Do we know where we can find it? It still hasn't been released officially. Uh, there's talks about maybe Amazon Prime. So I will make sure that I share okay. when it's out. All right. Well, my awesome thing is not related to my work. It is related to a video game that my husband and I are playing. I don't think I've talked about this before. Um, it is a game called Stray. And it is a game where you get to be a stray cat. <laughs> In a world, <laughs> a world filled with robots. And um, basically, you have to, like, help the robots get out of this, like, underground world and, and get to see the sky again. But you're a cat and you do cat things like you get stuck, your, your head gets stuck in a paper bag and then you can't, like, navigate yourself. <laughs> it's like really funny. <laughs> you can take naps. Um, you like to push cans off. There's so many cans set up. You can just push them off the edge. Um, what is of, this? Like, sh- things. What sort of platform is this game on? Um, it's definitely on PS4 and I think PS5. But I think, like, for me, what was amazing about it is that there's always these video interludes in these types of video games. And you cannot tell the difference between the video interlude and the actual game. Mm. which I've never seen before. This is the first time that I've seen something look so beautiful and well done and realistic. And like the way the cat moves and like at some point you get a little backpack that you wear with a robot companion. There's a lot that goes on (laughs) in this game. Um, And you kind of are uncomfortable and it takes you a while to get used to it. So it feels like they really understood cats and it's a joy to play. And uh, at first you wander around like really nice. And then eventually there's things that can come in that will kill you. So, but it's mostly a game of puzzle solving and finding things and exploration, which is great. And an occasional like mutant thing that was basically created to like keep the garbage clean and then started to eat anything that was organic, (laughs) (laughs) including cats. I think I might need to go uh, find this game. I feel like Charlotte might, might like playing Stray. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor and mixed and mastered by Tony Baum. Our theme song is by our little brother, Depish, and our graphics were created by Perpetual Notion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-A-I-N-S podcast. You can also go to our website, brainspodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Heather. And I'm your host, Sarah. Bye. Bye.